0: Well, I'd invite you to turn to the book of Exodus, chapter 12, as we'll begin or continue on in our sermon series through Exodus and focusing now on the last 10th plague. Am I on? Okay. Oh, yeah. A couple of you looked at me funny, so I just want to make sure. In fact, let's stand together. If, if Let's get an opportunity to stretch our legs a little bit and stand together as we read God's Word. I'm going to be in Exodus, chapter 12, verses 29 through 42. We'll go through kind of the middle section of this chapter. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go, serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds as you have said, and be gone, and bless me also. The Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste, for they said, We shall all be dead. So the people took their dough before it was leavened, And their kneading bowls being bound up in their their cloaks and on their shoulders. The people of Israel had also done as Moses told them, for they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, so that they let them have what they asked. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. And the people of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Sukkoth about 600,000 men on foot, besides women and children. It was a night of watching by the Lord to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So the same night is a night of watching kept to the Lord by all the people of Israel throughout their generations. Maybe may be seated. I'll ask a question that some of you may have unfortunately had to ask yourselves. I don't know. But I'll ask you, if you had to evacuate your home quickly, what would you grab and take with you? Uh, One of the classic answers is the photo albums, something that can't be replaced or bought. We have our theories about what we would take with us if we were in such a situation we had to leave quickly. Uh, But reality is often different. During wildfires in California in 2019, uh, some California residents who had to evacuate their homes on a Facebook group actually shared stories of what they took when they evacuated their homes. Some of the responses were a little bit humorous. One person took hazelnut coffee creamer. That was what they grabbed as they were leaving their home, had to make sure to grab the coffee creamer. Another reported that they took 50 pounds of pulled pork that they had purchased for a large party, didn't want to lose that. One person took small decorative dishes full of gummy worms. Important grab. Another person said they grabbed two bell peppers and six leftover Popeye's biscuits. Another, an aging house plant. Uh, one person took the television remote. Not the television, just the remote. And another, a bathroom rug. Under panic and haste, you might end up taking weird things with you. And in fact, in our text this morning, it's an evacuation story of people leaving and somebody takes something weird with them. The Israelites take something weird with them. They take their unleavened bread and kneading bowls. We'll, we'll talk about why. They're leaving under unusual circumstances, evacuating Egypt. Our goal this morning is to examine the circumstances around their Leaving around their deliverance, why did they leave? In what manner did they leave? In fact, I'll I'll ask it this way. In what manner will God finally deliver his people? That's kind of our main question this morning. In what manner will God finally deliver his people? This is a a deliverance story. And for some time, the Lord has been promising that he would deliver his people. They've gone through plague after plague and hundreds of years, and God has promised that he will one day deliver his people. Now that time has come. So in in what manner will God deliver his people? And also, why does that matter to us? Like, Why does it matter to us what happened to the Israelites in Egypt 3,000 years ago? Or over 3,000 years ago? Like, What does that have to do with us today? And my basic premise for you and for us this morning is that the way in which God delivered his people then is a foreshadowing or a pattern for how God will deliver his people in the future. But as we look at this deliverance story, we can learn how God will deliver us later when we are finally delivered and fully enter into his kingdom. And we can look at that then and learn how God will deliver in the future. By learning how God has delivered his people, we will learn how God will deliver his people So we'll ask from this text as we go through it, in what manner will God finally deliver his people? And we'll find there are four answers I'll put forward for you. The first is the most stark, maybe the most dreadful, horrific, really. And we see that God first will deliver his people through comprehensive death. Through comprehensive death, God will deliver his people. Here in the 10th plague, God finally strikes all of Egypt with the death of the firstborn. Verse 29, at midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians. And there was a great cry in Egypt for there was not a house where someone was not dead. So finally, the 10th plague comes. God strikes down all the firstborn Egypt. And one of the things that, that strikes me about this passage, which I find interesting, is there's no real depiction of it. It happens quickly and kind of without a lot of extra fanfare. We don't have a physical description of what happened. We don't have the symptoms that the people experienced before they died. We don't know what this... Um, Death looked like, you know, I kind of imagine like the smog monster, the smoke monster from Lost, like that's what I picture, if you know that reference, but, but I don't know what it looked like as God swept through Egypt and killed all the firstborns, but we just know that it happened what's really given attention is the effect of the deaths that everybody wakes up in terror and you can imagine what would happen in the middle of the still night you hear one cry in one household and that wakes up another and and then there's just this echo a cacophony of cries and people screaming in horror as they see their firstborns all pass in the middle of the night and it reaches even the house of pharaoh and i imagine he had a servant who alerted him to this, and probably a servant who looked over his family, that kind of thing, and I don't, this is again speculative, it's not in the text, but I, but I wouldn't want to be that servant who had to wake up Pharaoh, the king, in the middle of the night and give him this news. And it is horrific. I would say this is literally um, my night there. One of the things I didn't know about becoming a parent is I would never sleep quite the same way again. Uh, and, and there's not just the kids being up at night and keeping you up, but... I slept more heavily as a single man without kids. My wife might argue this, but but I sleep more lightly now. Now that there's four others in the house that I'm uh, theoretically responsible for. So I still go as a routine and a ritual and check on them in the middle of the night and make sure they're all right before I go to bed. Uh, It's a compulsion because I... Care for them. And this is my nightmare, to wake up and find that a child has passed. It's horrific, particularly because of how widespread the deaths are. From the greatest to the least. Notice, from from Pharaoh's house, from Pharaoh himself, to the person in the dungeon. This is the comprehensive death and judgment that swept through Egypt. There is no favoritism, no partiality on God's behalf. It didn't matter if you were privileged and powerful and of high status and wealth, or if you were poor and a victim and underprivileged, the judgment of God shows no favoritism. All people are sinners worthy of judgment, and it doesn't matter what your status is or what your background is, neither victims nor victors get a pass. When God comes to judge sinful people, he plays no favorites. There is no partiality. Listen to what Paul says in Romans 2. He, the Lord, will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. His judgment and that death is comprehensive. No matter background, privilege, or any other factor. Death will come to all who are not covered by the blood of the Lamb, regardless of who you are. And this death is a certain kind of death that will one day eventually come. So this death that happens here prefigures the greater judgment and the greater death to come. This is a physical death upon firstborns. But what God will bring in the end, in final judgment, is a spiritual death. And that is a far greater death. Physical death separates body from soul, separates soul out of your body. Spiritual death separates soul from God. God himself is life, he is peace, he is joy, he is rest. He is all good things and all good things come from him. And in the end, when God makes his final judgment and he condemns all those who are not in Christ to death and judges and separates, all those who are separated from God will experience spiritual death, which is eternal separation from him, which means eternal separation from everything good. And eternal separation from God is eternal torment. Separation from all of God's life and grace and goodness. That is the death that will come. So we look at this passage here in Exodus, in this 10th plague, and we say that is horrific and shocking. And yes, it is. And it must be and it should be to warn us of the far more horrific judgment to come. It ought to teach us to fear the comprehensive death that God will bring in judgment and show us that we can be delivered from death by death, particularly the death of the firstborn. I'll show you what I mean. Here in this passage, Israel is delivered by, through the means of the death of the firstborn. Numbers 33, verses 1 through 5, looks back on this instance, this Passover, and listen to what Numbers 33 says. On the day after the Passover, the people of Israel went out triumphantly in the sight of all the Egyptians while the Egyptians were burying all their firstborn, whom the Lord had struck down among them. This moment of death of the firstborn upon Egypt caused a nationwide burial time which allowed the Israelites to leave before the Egyptians had a chance to change their mind. God used this death of the firstborn as the means in which the opportune time in when he would deliver his people. And it foreshadows how God's people in the end will be delivered by the death of the firstborn. We, as God's people, the church, those who believe in Jesus Christ, who are covered by the blood of the Lamb, will be delivered by his death, the death of the ultimate firstborn son, Jesus Christ. This is a foreshadowing foreshadowing of what's to come how can you be delivered by this compre- from this comprehensive death you're delivered by the comprehensive death of Jesus which covers all sin and uh, allows us to be removed from God's judgment just as the Israelites we will be delivered from and through comprehensive death and just like them just as they were we will be delivered with sudden urgency The second answer to our question, what manner will God finally deliver his people? Second, with sudden urgency. Verse 31. Then he summoned, he Pharaoh, summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go, serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds as you have said, and be gone, and bless me also. The Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste, for they said, We shall all be dead. So the people took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading bowls being bound up in their cloaks on their shoulders. And verse 39 says, And they baked unleavened cakes of the dough that they had brought out of Egypt, for it was not leavened, because they were thrust out of Egypt and could not wait, nor had they prepared any provisions for themselves. Now in response to the horrific death around them, Pharaoh summons Aaron and Moses, and if you recall, Pharaoh had once said, you'll never see me again. He had cast out Aaron and Moses from his presence, said, I never want to see you again, never want to look at you again, and when next time I see you, you're going to die. And now he has reversed course. He's changed his mind, because context and circumstances have changed. After all this death, he says, hey, could you guys come back? And he brings them in, and he summons them, and he says, you all have to go. I need all of you out. And notice what Pharaoh does here. He finally... And God has crushed him, and he finally submits to the will of Moses and Aaron and God himself. He sends them out and says, take all your people, take all your animals, go. And he even recognizes Israel as a people. He recognizes Yahweh. Go and serve your Lord. You and the children, the people of Israel. He sees them as a separate people, as a people unto themselves with their own God. He recognizes who he is and says, go out from me. He even asks a blessing on the way, which I find humorous and tragic as well. He can't accept Yahweh as his Lord. He can't submit to him. But if you could just have some favor from him. As a pastor, I see the, this instinct before, because I've had... People who don't want anything to do with the church, don't want anything to do with Christianity or religion or whatever they you know, but they think, well, maybe you have like a line in with God and maybe you have some special God powers and if you could throw up a prayer for me and bless me. Can you do your like magic pastoral thing and just ask God to what I want to tell people is you come, submit to the Lord. You don't need a mediator. Jesus Christ, if you know him, will be your media. Anyway, that's beside the point. Pharaoh doesn't understand all this. He just says, go, bless me also. And he doesn't want them around. He's not even worried about them returning. He just wants them gone. Um, It reminded me, I saw a video going around, kind of a viral video going around this last week of Harrison Ford and the magician David Blaine. And the magician David Blaine is in Harrison Ford's house doing a magic trick for him, and it's one of those magic tricks where he does, you know, flips around some cards a little bit, has Harrison Ford take one of his cards, I believe it's the Nine of Hearts, but incidental, Um, and puts the cards back in the deck, does some things with them, and he has Harrison Ford grab a fruit, a piece of fruit off of his counter. So Ford grabs an orange and takes it and David Blaine kind of takes it and gives back to him and cuts it open. And inside the orange is the card that Harrison Ford chose. And I don't know how he does this. Harrison Ford didn't know how he did it. And Harrison Ford, awestruck, responds by saying, get out of my house. <laughs> and if you watch it, you'll find he actually used more colorful language. I won't repeat it on God's house on a Sunday morning. But he said, get out of my house. It's what happens when you're uh, afraid of the person before you. There's power there. It's what, again, Peter did, remember, when he was up all night fishing, couldn't catch anything, Then Jesus says, well, come out, let your net down again. Huge pile of fish come in, and Peter says, get away from me, Lord, I'm a sinful man. When we recognize that there's power, there's something before us that's terrifying, it's get out if we don't... We're uncomfortable by it. And that's how the Egyptians responded. That's how Pharaoh responded. They're saying, get out. Get out in haste. Go quickly. All the Egyptians want the Israelites to leave. They're fearing for their lives. They're uncomfortable with them at this moment. So that's why the Israelites leave suddenly. They have this window while the Egyptians are burying their dead, while the Egyptians want them gone and are afraid of them. They give them favor and they go. So the Israelites have to leave quickly. Quickly. They haven't even filled their coolers yet, right? When we go on vacation, we make meals and we plan ahead and we bring snacks and we have a cooler full of stuff that we're going to bring with us to make sure we're all set. Israelites haven't done that yet. Their bread hadn't risen. So they took with them their unleavened bread. They didn't have time to make bread that would rise. They took with them their kneading bowls so they would have food along the way. This became the basis for the Feast of Unleavened Bread when they left in haste, in a hurry, before the bread could rise. And if you'll forgive me for this, you could say that this was the first fast food. This is a. Yeah. But it's something that happens quickly. Think about this sudden deliverance. It had been building up for years. I mean, I don't know how long it took for all the plagues to happen, months, maybe years, for all of them to be cycled through. So they've been waiting for this for a long time. They've been in captivity for 400 years. They're waiting for this deliverance, and then all of a sudden it comes. It's like waiting to get to the top of a roller coaster, slowly inching your way up, and then all of a sudden you're going down at mock speed. That is how this deliverance happened in the blink of an eye, and that's how it will be in the end for us. We have been waiting for God to deliver us, waiting for God to fix this broken world, waiting through trial and struggle, and then when it comes, it will come suddenly. That is the big truth that you need to know about the end times, right? When the Lord returns and when he judges all people. You can take your charts and your graphs, and those are good, and you can try and figure out, map out the day, but in the end, Jesus says, nobody will know the day or the hour, and the big thing you need to know is that when it happens, it will happen quickly. So Jesus teaches this in Luke 17, verse 24. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. When the Lord comes and returns, it will be like lightning flashing. It will be obvious and apparent and sudden and quick. Then he says in verses 28 through 30, Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. They were living life as normal unaware that anything was about to change. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. Oh, I forgot a verse. <laughs> They're buying and selling, planting a building. But on the day when the lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. So there Jesus teaches on the day of judgment, when that's coming, when the Lord returns to judge all people, it will be like the day of love. Everything was fine, everything was going normal, they are buying and selling, doing all their normal things, and then all of a sudden, deliverance will come and judgment will come. There will be a sudden, urgent separation, and the only question mark, the, the, the thrust of all of the end times teaching for you is, are you ready? Like, are you prepared for that? Do you believe in Jesus Christ, who is the only escape from judgment in that moment? And the urgent plea of Scripture, the urgent plea of the Exodus is be ready. Cover yourself in the blood of the Lamb. Be prepared when the Lord comes. Make sure you have accepted Jesus Christ as your sacrifice so that you'll be delivered. And this suddenness of deliverance, this urgency, is, I think, both a a threat and it's a promise. It's a good promise. And when that day comes, you won't have to wait any longer. And if you've been a Christian for many years waiting on God, that is good news. That when deliverance comes, it will be quick, it will be hasty, and there will finally be time. And you'll thank the Lord, because it won't be a moment too long. It'll be here before you know it. Praise his name. God's deliverance will happen with sudden urgency. Third, it'll happen with extravagant favor. With extravagant favor. People may go without risen bread, but they won't go empty handed. They'll go with extravagant favor. Verse 35. The people of Israel had also done as Moses told them, for they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they let them have what they asked. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. And the people of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Sikath, about 600,000 men on foot, besides women and children. A mixed multitude also went up with them and very much livestock, both flocks and herds. So the Israelites left, actually with favor and respect, and they left with wealth. They just so happened to be leaving one of the wealthiest nations and empires of all time, that God just so happened to work it out that way, that he was going to leave them in captivity to a place that was incredibly wealthy, so that when they were delivered and took wealth from them, they would be wealthy people too. Whether you call it repayment for 400 years of slavery, or just the spoils of war, for a war that God had won on their behalf, God ensured that they left Wealthy, and it was pointed out to me uh, recently, I don't know if I'd ever made this conscious connection before, but Egypt funded the worship of the Israelites. Later in Exodus, we'll have chapters devoted to the building of the tabernacle and all the, the gold inside and the gold utensils used for worship. Where did they get that gold from? On the flip side... There's another scene of worship in Exodus where they make a golden calf. Where did that gold come from? Just as an aside, something to think about. What do we do with the wealth God provides and gives us? They took wealth and gold and silver. They also took a wealth of animals with flocks, herds, and, and birds. And I, I have no idea how they transported the birds. <laughs> I don't know if they had them on little leashes and Uh, That was just what I imagined. I'm sure there were cages of some sort. But they left also with a wealth of people, a ton of people moving through the wilderness. Um, A ton of people went on this journey from Ramses to Sukkoth, those two towns. We're not exactly sure where Sukkoth is, but it's probably about 25 miles southeast of Ramses, um, and they went on this 25-mile journey, and they went with a lot of people. If you remember way back in the beginning, in in the beginning of Exodus, there's that first Pharaoh. What was he afraid of with the Israelites? He wanted to crush them because they were getting to be too many. They were a rising nation up within the Egyptians, and he was afraid of them because they kept multiplying and growing. God was giving them favor. So now we have this large group of people that is leaving Egypt and being delivered, They have a wealth of people. The text says 600,000 men on foot. This presents a little bit of a problem. This is one of, actually, I think, the most challenging textual problems in all the Old Testament. And here's why. If you have 600,000 men of a fighting age, soldiers, what would the total number of people be? Well, if you add in women and children, there's probably around 200 or 2 million people. About 2 million people total that would be leaving Egypt. That is about double the population of Johnson County and Kansas City combined. A lot of people. Some, someone estimated that if you put all those people in a parade in a line and they were 50 people across, that that line would go back 50 kilometers. So it's hard to logically think through, like, how could that many people move through the wilderness in this 25 Mile journey and how how would they be provided for? What was the the bathroom situation like for that many people? Right, like practical details. How? So some have come up with alternate ways of interpreting this, which may be valid. And someone said, well, maybe that word for thousand, the Hebrew word aleph, is could also be translated clan or tribe. So it's 600 clans. Everywhere else in Scripture, it's translated thousand, but maybe here it could be translated clan or tribe or Maybe it's possible that when it refers to men on foot, that that could just be not a reference to soldiers, though everywhere else in Scripture seems to be referring to soldiers, men of a fighting age. Maybe it just means adults traveling, people journeying. So it's 600,000 adults, and that would reduce the numbers quite a bit. And honestly, I have no idea what the answer is. I don't know if this was a miraculously large group of people that God miraculously provided for, That's possible. He's kept people alive and fish before. Like, God can do that. Or it could be that we in our biblical studies have work to do in interpreting what the original meant, and and that's entirely possible as well. Not really the main point. The idea, however, you slice it, is that a large group of people went, and more importantly, it was a mixed multitude. That's what the text says a mixed multitude. What that means, quite literally, is it was a peoples of a lot of different nations, a lot of different ethnicities represented in this. There were not just Israelites, but other tribes with them, other people with them. Even Egyptians went with them. There were Egyptians mixed into the people of Israel. We have proof of this because Leviticus 24.10 makes an offhand comment about an Egyptian within the tribe of Israel. Leviticus 24.10 tells the story of a man who blasphemed and, and here's how it begins. It says, Now an Israelite woman's son, whose father was an Egyptian, went out among the people of Israel. So within Israel, you had an Egyptian married to an Israelite and that was just, it wasn't remarkable. it's was just an offhand comment in the law. Showing us there were Egyptians mixed in, there were other people mixed into Israel showing us that, it, that the people of Israel were not defined by blood. That not all of Israel was Israelite by descent rather they were Israelite by faith there's this group of people delivered of mixed ethnicities united and called out favored by God and they were there because they believed and they're covered by the blood of the lamb and it shows us what will happen in the future again a picture of how God will deliver his people in the future with wealth and honor and favor a royal people that he will call out from every tribe and nation. This is his bride made from all sorts of different people. Now our world is constantly working to divide us. I don't know if you felt this, to categorize us, to segregate us by wealth in some cultures, status. You know, caste system, are you privileged or not privileged? Or divide us by ethnicity, skin color, ability, disability, political affiliation, whatever it might be. Our world is actively working at dividing us all the time. But that is not God's agenda. God's agenda in delivering his people is to build out a united people from all over the place who are favored and honored by him. And they will be wealthy and in his kingdom of great opulence and wealth. That is the picture for us in the future. Think of how Revelation paints heaven, the new creation, new heaven, new earth. Having gates made of pearl, streets paved of gold, walls covered in jewels. All of that is a symbol, an image that this kingdom of God that you are entering into will be a place of wealth and glory and splendor and will have all that you need. You seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things, all that you need, will be added to you. Revelation 21 paints a picture this way. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it for the glory of God gives it light and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it and its gates will never be shut by day. There will be no night there. They'll bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. So just like the Israelites As they leave Egypt, when we enter into God's kingdom, when we are delivered, we will be a people of wealth and honor. Paul says we will even judge angels. Why? Because you are in Christ. And in Christ, you are seated at the right hand of God over all creation. Paul says, don't you know you'll judge angels? Don't you know you'll... Judge spiritual beings that you are a people honored and favored and glorious, and that is your future. Paul's talking to people who are skirmishing and fighting and suing each other in the church. He says, Don't you know who you are? You're fighting about stupid stuff, about money, and you're forgetting your inheritance, and you're worried about your dumb reputation. Who gives a rip what people think of you on this earth? Don't you know what your future is? I want to press this home because I'm watching currently as people who once named Jesus Christ as Lord, who once uh, confessed Scripture as their authority, people who, who call themselves Christians, walking away from Scripture and walking away from Jesus Christ because it's hurting their reputation currently on earth. And it's happening now. And some of you may be pressured. We're all pressured in this world. This is one of Satan's schemes. We're all pressured to maintain our reputation and our honor and our glory here on earth. And what will people think of us? And what will my friends think of me? And what will my boss think of me? And how will I work? And we're worried about our reputation here on earth. And Jesus Christ comes and scripture comes and Exodus comes reminding us of this is what you will be upon your deliverance. You will go with wealth and honor. That is your future. Your royalty Who cares about your reputation now? Who cares about your wealth now? Be poor now. Be trodden on now. That's fine. Look at where it ends. Look at your inheritance as the people of God. You will go and you'll be delivered with wealth and honor in Jesus Christ. Cling to Him. Let your reputation and your status here on earth be darned. We will be delivered with extravagant favor. And lastly, fourth, we will be delivered by vigilant providence. By vigilant providence. And the salvation and deliverance of the Israelites occurred by the meticulous plan and providence and care of God. By the vigilant providence of God. Verse 40. The time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of 430 years, on that very day, all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. It was a night of watching by the Lord to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So this same night is a night of watching kept to the Lord by all the people of Israel throughout their generations. So finally, their time in Egypt has come to an end. 430 years, there's the end date. Not a day longer than God willed. That's what that phrase means when it says, on that very day. That doesn't mean it was 430 years to the day as an anniversary. The point of that phrase, on that very day, is to say that on that day, the day that the Lord chose, the day that the Lord appointed, on that day, God delivered his people. It's emphasizing God's meticulous providence in this, that he ordained this, that this is the day of God's choosing. This was his plan from long ago. It was his plan from before Abraham had a son. Genesis 15, Abraham receives a vision from God, a revelation. When the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years but I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. God said that all the way back to Abraham, meaning God had planned this long ago. None of this was a surprise to him. There was no moment, no day in the series of their captivity in Egypt or the, throughout all the plagues that was a surprise to God. He had willed it all. He had ordained it all. He knew what was going on, Him, he knew the end date. He watched sovereignly over them. And as they go out, the text says it was a night vigil or a night of watching by God. God was watching over them by night. Why? Because God doesn't sleep. He doesn't need to. We cry out to God very often. God, are you watching? God, are you paying attention? God, do you care? And then we fall asleep because we can't stay up. And then we're not watching. (laughs) And we're not in control because we can't be because we're not God. And all the while, he's watching. He's watching in the night and taking care of his people while Pharaoh is asleep, while his country crumbles and people die. Pharaoh can't stop it. He's the most powerful person on earth. He can't do anything about it, but God is watching, and he watches over his people. And because of that, the text says that the people then will keep a night vigil. Also, they will watch by night. Every year after, on the Passover, it's kind of a play on words, just as God looked upon them, so they will look back to God every year at the Passover, remembering how God cared for them. They'll remember his deliverance, how God delivered them from captivity, how God ordained it all, watched over them. This ordination, the sovereign care of God, is a wonderful comfort to us, because it tells us that God knows our end. God knows he has already scripted, he's already written out, he has already ordained the day of your death. He knows when it'll it will be and it's not a surprise to him, he's mapped it out. And if you are in Jesus Christ, if you are a Christian who is submitted to the Lord and you follow him and you believe in Jesus Christ, that he's paid for your sins, that he's resurrected from the dead, if you believe that you're in Christ, then God has already written out your triumph. He's already mapped it out. You may wonder. You may have hard days. You may have days of struggle. You may have days where things aren't going well at all. But God, if you are a Christian, has already mapped out the day when you will enter into glory, that you will go into his kingdom and you will be honored and exalted and lifted up in Jesus Christ. That day is already written out. Your days of trial are numbered. They are limited. They may seem like a long time, but they have an end date. And then glory is forever. And God has already mapped it out. He's already planned it. There's no question about it. The question is, will you trust him? Will you trust him to deliver you? Will you trust that he has a plan? Will you trust that your days of trial are numbered? They're limited. And every day that passes mercifully is one day closer to Glory. We could trust that God won't leave us in this mess a moment longer than He wants. He delivered Israel at exactly the right time according to His plan. And He will deliver you through death at exactly the right time according to His plan. And He won't leave you here a moment longer than He desires. Do you trust that He's good? Do you trust that He's holy and righteous and Sovereign and watches over you. And if you trust him, then you can trust that every pain you are experiencing while living is something that God has mapped out for your good before glory. You can trust that he'll keep you as long as needed until that day that the work he began will be completed, that God doesn't leave unfinished projects in people. And that in the end, you will meet God face to face and you will realize at that moment that your days of trial were nothing compared to the eternity of glory that awaits in God's kingdom. You'll find that his plan is perfect. and He has watched over you every step of the way, just like he watched over the Israelites leaving Egypt. As we close, I don't know what heaven looks like. None of us really do. Uh, We read passages of Scripture that talk about new heaven, new earth, the new creation, uh, the kingdom of God in all its fullness. And we have images, we have symbols, we have pictures, but we don't have a lot of concrete data. And, And I don't know what it's like to pass from life to death eternal life. We can watch that from the outside, but we don't know what that's like to go through it. We don't have a lot of concrete data to work with. We have to trust the Lord. But I think he gives us pictures like this, like the Exodus, to know how he operates. So when we think about our future deliverance into eternal life, we can look back on the Exodus and say, God took care of his people. He delivered them through death. He did it with haste and urgency. He gave them great favor as they went with wealth. And he watched over all of it by his sovereign hand. So we can look at that and trust that the Lord will take care of us and he will deliver us the same way. You say, well, how do I know I'll be delivered? How do I know that I'll experience that? How do you know you'll experience deliverance into eternal life rather than judgment and eternal death? And mercifully, thankfully, God has made it very, very easy on us. All we have to do is repent and believe. How are we saved? How are we delivered? Romans 10 gives us a very simple answer if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Will you trust in the Lord to deliver you? Will you pray with me? Our Father and God, we thank you for uh, the testimonies we have from the past, the stories we have, which are not just fables or myths, but their history, uh, their history as you have ordained it and provided for us, that we may look back and know that you are a good God and know that we can trust you as we face the days ahead. And Lord, when we look at this passage of deliverance, I pray that you would comfort us when we look to our final and future deliverance. And we know in many ways in Christ we have been delivered already from sin and death. And Lord, we await the day when we will be fully and finally delivered. Passed into eternal perfection and glory, not something that we've earned, but a gift given by your good and gracious hand, received through faith in Jesus Christ. And Lord, I pray for all who are here, that no matter where we are at currently or what struggles we are going through, that in the end, that everyone here will have been found covered by the blood of Jesus Christ, that we have put our faith in him, and that you will be merciful and deliver all of us from terrible judgment. may we praise your name, for you are a good and gracious and merciful God. Amen.